This episode is sponsored by Fawn's Music. You sent out the invites. You made the food. You prepped the bar. It's just about party time. And then the first guest arrives and you realize that unless you get some jams going, this is going to be one dull, awkward get-together. Fawn's Music to the rescue. With Fawn's Music coasters, everyone can hear the music they want without bothering the host while they're serving food or making drinks. Just tap the coaster with your phone and you can add songs from Spotify to the party playlist. No longer will the host have to be the DJ. With Fawn's Music, now everyone can join in the fun and add to the musical vibe of your parties. So share the love of music and get $5 off with our special code OLDTIMEY at FawnsMusic.com. F-O-N-Z Music.com. That's code OLDTIMEY at FawnsMusic.com so they know Old Timey Crimey sent you. You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. Hey, it's Old Timey Crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Scott. And I'm Amber. And we are here this week to bring you some historical true crime from 1950 and before because the good old days weren't always so good. But... Before we get to that, uh, don't forget that you should definitely, definitely go check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. And over there, we have our weekly bonus episodes where one of us tells the other two about a crime or a criminal that we maybe didn't know about. And we really like to pick some good, good stuff for those. I mean, not that we don't pick good stuff for the main episodes, but it's those little kind of quirky ones that sometimes fall through the, the cracks and don't really uh, get, get a lot of play on the, the standard websites and resources. So, And Scott just told us about a very interesting serial killer that is one of those cases that you can't find a lot of information about. He told us about that today. And then we also have our monthly extra, extra bonus episodes where we each pick something and, and tell the other two about it. And those are, are longer and uh, generally themed in some way, like murders of the 60s or you know, reading about the his, his famous corpses <laughs> and where they ended up. <laughs> so, yeah, you should definitely come check that out. $5 and you're in and you can get well over 60. We're actually approaching 70 of the old tiny crimies as well as those monthly extra extras. And we're just having a great time over there. You also get a shout out on the show. And if you let us know your birthday, which uh, some of our patrons have, thank you. I'm putting them on the calendar. We will shout you out on your birthday, too. So you get not one, but two shout outs. Woo! Woo-hoo! Somebody who... Uh, No, there's no segue. I was going to say, you're really reaching here, Christy. It's somebody (laughs) who also had birthdays. (laughs) It was... It was going to be quite the reach if I found anything, so I decided to to save save my my arm and my back from reaching uh, ten feet above myself. We are going to be talking this week about Velma West. So she's an interesting lady. We'll say that much. She was born Velma Van Wert around 1906. 
grew up around Cleveland, Ohio. She was, you know, a little blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid. Her father was a traveling salesman. Around age four, she actually was winner of a children's beauty prize in the Perfect Baby Contest. Ooh. Way to way to establish those unrealistic beauty standards real early. All other babies in fear. Behold the Uber baby. <laughs> yes. But uh, it seems like that she might she might have actually peaked there at, at four. Um, because I know that life, feeling. <laughs> <laughs> don't we all? Uh, life got a little rough. She suffered from some illnesses, and she said she was always like frailer than her peers. She later characterized herself as in just a constant fear of illness and and also other people. She had these wild mood swings. She would faint a lot. She was an only child until uh, the age of 11 when her brother was born, and then that completed the family. She did not finish high school. She got a job at uh, Rothman Variety Store, worked there for about a year, and while she was there, she would go to a restaurant nearby for lunch. She became a regular there, and then she got fired from the store, and the restaurant owner proposed to her. He was 56, and she was in her late teens. Well, I say good move on his part. (laughs) She actually said yes, but there was another guy waiting in the wings. That was Thomas Edward West, but he went by Edward. So that's what we're going to call him. She had met him at a picnic, I think around age 17 was what I gathered. He would have been around 21, so a little bit smaller of an age gap. And later it was said that she had, quote, previously never met a man who had interested her enough to make her forget her fear of him. And that's from the Brownsville Herald. So that, that's an interesting way to, to put it, that she was just afraid of all men, but this man was interesting enough that she was like, oh, I don't, I'm not afraid. I'm just too interested to be afraid. Too interested to be afraid. Too interested to be afraid. Sounds like another Velma. Velma Dinkley from (laughs) Scooby-Doo. Yeah. You know what? A lot of people would fuck Daphne. I don't know. I'm more of a Velma guy myself. Me too. You could Uh, knock her glasses off and she'd be like on all fours searching for him with that butt up in the air. Mm. (laughs) That's not creepy at all, Scott. Yeah, not creepy at all. <laughs> the two of them were uh, uh, Edward and Velma, not uh, <laughs> Velma and the rest of the Scooby gang, were very different in every way. Uh, she was said to be a mere slip of a girl, and he was six feet tall. He was the youngest in his family, was said to have kind of a jealous nature, a little bit of a temper. But his family was pretty well known in Ohio and as well as just in the United States. They owned a prominent nursery in an area where this was nurseries were a big industry. It was literally called the nursery belt, which sounds like something you wear to preschool. Yeah. (sighs) Got to put on my nursery belt and then uh, maybe I'll I'll bring something for show and tell. I don't know. Um, 
So he was a horticulturalist, and the company was nationally known. It was TB West Nursery, founded in 1893. Now, I did a little bit of research about the nursery belt because I was curious. The area where he came from, Perry, uh, it was in Lake County. And Lake County was known, or still is probably, for its fantastic soil. They have over 17 discrete types of soil. And this is likely due to the glaciers that subsumed the land five times during the last ice age. And each time the glaciers would thaw, they'd leave behind all the sand and the gravel and the rocks that they had brought from the north. So it gives you a lot of variety in the soil, which makes it, I guess, so you can grow more stuff. This is, this is the nursery hour with Scott, Chrissy, and Amber. It's old-timey geology. Yes, it is. Very old-timey. If I would have known this, I would have gotten my friend Holson on the show to talk about geology. He would have a lot to say about this. That would have been... I mean, I I, I gave it the best I could. I also had a a geology major roommate in college. Uh, That didn't teach me much other than that geology majors love rock decor. Um, There were rocks. There were a lot of rocks in our apartment. Now, Velma for all her fear, is very much into being a flapper. She was, uh, she would later say, one of the first to have the flapper bob. She wore slacks when no one was really doing that yet. She spoke her mind. She was said to have quite the acid tongue. She just really liked living a carefree life. She loved smoking and driving her car fast and smoking and smoking. She really loved to smoke, guys. What about driving her. her car fast? Did she like that? She did indeed, probably while smoking. Nice. Almost guaranteed. <laughs> yeah, pretty, it's pretty much a guarantee. I don't know anybody who's a smoker that doesn't smoke while they drive. Velma, according to her mother, if we get different portrayals here. It's interesting. Uh, she's just a normal American girl. She was jolly and popular, but not brazen. So not a bold thing. So she's from Cleveland. And Edward is from Perry, Ohio. So these two places are fairly close. Perry is 35 miles northeast of Cleveland. uh, But they're very, very different. Uh, Perry, the village, had 602 members in the 1920 census. Although uh, that number would skyrocket to 645 by the 1930 census. So some some population growth there. Stand back. I don't know where we're going to put all these people. (laughs) Right? Currently, it bills itself as a balance of country living and modern conveniences. Sounds like such bullshit. It really does. It really does. Yeah, it, it does. I, I think there's and there's a lot of places that could say that about them, themselves. Any place that's within 40 miles of a big city. How do you generally wa- how would you like high taxes and no Internet? Good news. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's essentially how it works in those towns. Yes. Mm-hmm. So Cleveland, where Velma was coming from. There's a, a sharp contrast here. In, in 1920, there was a population of nearly 800,000. And that would grow to 900,000 by 1930. So definitely a marked difference. She's a big city girl who's going to a small town. So they eloped in 1926 and then went off to Perry. At the time, 
Velma was 20 or 21, and uh, Edward was around 25. They did get, uh, even though they eloped, they got a little belated wedding reception thrown by his parents. And boy, did she ever get all the jaws in town flapping and the pearls a-clutching when she fired up a cigarette at the reception. It's just so funny that it's like the things that men can do and women can't. Yeah, right? (laughs) You know all the guys are out there with cigars and she comes out and lights a cigarette and they're like, what the fuck is wrong with her? I say, Jeeves, (laughs) do you smell this woman? Burn the witch! Yes! I've I've been to Cuyahoga, Cuyahoga, Ohio. I've I've been to this general area. Yeah, there's some witch burnings going on there. No doubt about it. <laughs> Hello, I have Ohio. Been too, and I agree. <laughs> so the papers would call her a modern woman, and yes, they did put scare quotes around that. You know, if they'd been talking to you, they would have made the little bunny ears with their fingers. Tiny bunny ears. <sighs> They used him so much, they started to gain altitude and fly away like little butterflies. <laughs> that's, that's a delightful image, Scott. Thank isn't, you. Isn't it? <laughs> Just a bunch, of, a bunch of angry men harumphing into the sky, using their air quote fingerings to gain altitude. <sighs> <laughs> and then they can fly away and leave the rest of us modern women alone. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so... His family owned a lot of land, and so they settled into a little honeymoon cottage in an out-of-the-way corner of the family property. But Thelma, as you may have guessed, she was not about to fit into the crowd around here. They tried to do some socializing, but I think people could tell she was bored and... Maybe weren't so fond of the acid tongue and the, you know, put off by the smoking and not used to her modern ways. So the Wests just stopped being invited around to the the local places. Uh, There were a couple of different ways that the papers put it. She was a 12 o'clock girl in a 9 o'clock town. What the fuck does that even mean? (laughs) Nothing. It means nothing. She was a high back chair kind of girl in a lazy boy kind of world. That made more sense. Well, I'm trying to think. I don't know. She was a slacks girl in a dresses world. She was an acetaminophen broad in an aspirin kind of way. <laughs> so, yeah, that was definitely... Uh, she, she just wasn't about to fit in. She was a, a square peg, and this was one round hole. Jesus, it goes she on. Was, <laughs> she was bored as hell. And so the Wests would go to Cleveland sometimes for parties. But Edward was not really into this. He was a homebody. He tended to have some depressive episodes. And you can tell. I mean, she wants to go out gallivanting and have fun. He wants to stay home. And it just, you know, she, he wants to settle down in a small town. She wants to be in the big city. It, it doesn't have the makings of a, a really long-lasting marriage. And it really, that, that bloom fell off the rose pretty early on. They were married less than a year before trouble popped up. She did admit that she wasn't a very good housekeeper, and that was pretty much the the main expectation of, of young women in those days, and, you know, married women. And being young, she also wanted to go out and, and do things. And here's the thing. There may have been one other conflict 
uh, in this relationship in that they may, may, we don't know, have both been attracted to the same gender. Hmm. So I do have a little bit about homosexuality in the 1920s because I was curious about how it was perceived and how uh, it, it may have flourished or not. I was just curious about that time period because I, I've never really thought about it before. You, you mainly think about like the Stonewall uprisings as, a, you know, that big landmark moment. But the 1920s actually... It, it was it was not a bad time to be gay. I mean, I'm sure there were some bad moments, but you had what was called. Are you guys ready for it? I'm I'm here. I'm here. The pansy craze. Yes. <laughs> that was big in the 1920s and into the early 1930s. You had drag shows back then. They were called masquerade and civil balls that would draw in thousands of people, and you would have drag queens and kings. Performers like, okay, I went down the rabbit hole and I found this guy named Gene Malin. I love him. God damn, I love a good drag show. Oh, he is fantastic. He would perform in Greenwich Village clubs. And he. most sources say he didn't perform in drag, but there are some that do. A lot of them just said he was like an openly gay man and he would, he would wear tuxedos and he would sing. And he had these wonderfully wonderfully subversive songs that I just fell in love with. Um, Okay, so his 1931 song, That's What's the Matter With Me, I'm going to read you some lyrics, and you're not going to believe that this was written and sung and recorded in 1931. I don't know whether I'm Mr. Miss or Mrs. I'm on the spot, as you can plainly see. Before my birth, my mother had just flowers on her mind. The doctor who attended her was just so good and kind. And when he arrived, he brought the biggest pansy he could find. And that's what's the matter with me. I want to hear the song. It's on YouTube, and uh, I'll I'll make sure I I put the links up on the social media because they're, they're fantastic. There was another song that had some really interesting reactions in the in the YouTube comments. I don't normally go into them, but I was curious. And it was it's called uh, "Masculine Women and Feminine Men," and it's from that same time period. And there are so many people who are like, they're conflicted because they hate the song, but they love the song. <laughs> like because they hate the song is very much like you would maybe. It, it's the 1931 version of of Fox News freaking out over over transgender people. <laughs> that's what it is just that's exactly what it is but i don't know if it's being sarcastic and making fun of them in sort of you know a satirical way or not you really can't tell but the song is really damn catchy so i'm gonna putting all these up on the facebook because they're fantastic and even that one just because i I think it's subversive because you can't tell and so I, i think that the fact that you can't tell what its actual attitude is means that maybe it's actually taking a pot shot at all the people who would criticize people who are, are living their lives in a non-traditional way because that's who they are, because they don't conform, you know, you know the deal. So, but yeah, that was, I, I fell in love with Gene Mallon. It broke my heart. He died pretty young in, in, a, in a tragic car accident, but he had some wonderful songs. Another one was titled, Let's All Be Fairies. Let's, let's yes. all be fairies. Yes, let's. I need to let's. hear this song. These songs, let's all be fairies. You're very close. From You're Steve very close. to Jane to Mary. 
Well, that one was a little less, um, I think it was a little more coded because it's, it's let's all be fairies. And then it's a lot of talking about like traditional fairy type things that you meet, might read about in an actual fairy tale, you know, like meadows and, you know, palaces or whatever. I don't even remember what oh, it was, that, but it's just. A th that's going to be gorgeous. Let's steal a human child, replace it with an old fairy <laughs> and turn that <laughs> yeah. human child into a fairy. You know what I mean? Wink, wink. <laughs> All right, maybe I'm, <laughs> I'm just gonna say one more. Another one of his songs was "I'd rather be Spanish," and the way that that uh, that phrase ends in the chorus is "I'd rather be Spanish than Manish." So, Jesus, I like <laughs> so, this guy, girl, whatever. Yeah. So uh, Harlem and the Village at this point in time were home to small lesbian communities, and these drag shows they weren't only in New York, like you might think. They were happening in other cities like Baltimore, Pittsburgh, and we can probably assume Cleveland. But it's just something to keep in mind that it was definitely still taboo and there were, it was definitely still hard living that life in the 1920s. But it would end up being kind of there was an, kind of an, a more open period uh, while Prohibition was going on. And then once Prohibition ended and there were more like rules installed about who could serve alcohol, you know, guess what clubs weren't getting the licenses, mm. the gay clubs. So, so then it started. Oh, plus uh, there was also like the, the sex crime panic uh, in the mid 1930s because everybody just assumed that anyone who committed a sex crime was gay. And so then, you know, that, but there was this brief window where things were actually a little bit better for a little while. And then it took a couple more decades and a couple more decades after that. So, so yeah, that was kind of the, what was going on there. And he, yeah, this, this relationship was not going well one way or the other. Velma and Edward really arguing. He would open her mail. His jealous streak was really coming into play. They started having lots of arguments. And those arguments started getting physical on his side. He started hitting her. And we see something actually pretty rare here. She went to the sheriff. <laughs> like... Most women at the time, like, it was just like, well, this is my lot in life. And it, it sucked because that was what society told you. And so, you know, you were just like, well, he owns me now. He can, he can beat me up if he wants to. But she actually went to the sheriff and was like, hey, he's beating me up. Do something about this. It's protect me. This is from the Lancaster Eagle Gazette. He advised her to return home and make up with her husband. Well, there's some good, solid advice. Right? Yes. Go back to the person who's been beating you up and uh, just just play nice, bastards. So, not long after that incident, she was supposed to go to Cleveland for a bridge party at her pal Mabel Young's house. And it, it seems like at first he had said, yeah, you can go and you know what, I'll even, I'll go into the city with you. I won't go to the party because it's girls only. I'll do my own thing, but I'll, I'll go into the city with you. And uh, <laughs> and it just ended up being, well, the girls' party. I can, I can tell you, I have another song lyric to read you. This is from the song Boy in the Boat. And um, Boy in the Boat is uh, a euphemism for... Um, oh, we know. You, uh, you do? Oh, yeah, the boy in the boat. The little man in I the canoe. Okay, I didn't know. It's the clitoris. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, I didn't know. I don't know all the euphemisms, I guess. I, 
I'll I'll drop a book off uh, next time I'm driving by your place. Don't worry. <laughs> it's also weird that it's a boy in the boat. Why is it a boy or a man in the canoe? Why because can't women be don't belong on the sea. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot. It's the same as with trains. Our uteruses just fall right out. Exactly. Just just right there on the floor. And the, the the horrible thing is they don't really fall out. They just sort of dangle out and they're just flapping in the breeze. It's disgusting. Get these women off oh. this train and off this boat. We can't go anywhere but the kitchen. That's right. So this was uh, circa 1930, the song Boy in the Boat. When you see two women walking hand in hand, just look them over and try to understand. They'll go to these parties, have their lights down low. Only those parties where women can go. Really fell down the rabbit hole with 1920s and 30s protest songs about homosexuality. <laughs> so... Oh, so yeah, it's not a girl's only party, so he's not going to go. But on the day of, on December 6th, 1927, he said, you know what? You're not going either. Neither of us are going. No one's going. That crowd that you run with, they're too fast. It's a fast crowd. And I want you to stay home with the, the slow girls here in Perry. So. Why don't you play bridge with some of those nice Perry girls? Yeah. <laughs> they don't well. bob their hair. Yeah. So this is from her telling about what happened next. And I'm going to also give the more straightforward version, uh, but I wanted to present both of them uh, just for comparison. They were fighting. They were, they were arguing. And it spiraled from being about the bridge party to being about all of their problems. We've all had that argument, right? <laughs> usually, oh, oh, just usually me? Usually whenever it be, it devolves, like anytime I've been a fight in a, like some sort of fight where it's like, it devolves into like, yeah, it's about all my problems. I usually go, I just got one problem, you, because you're the source of all my problems. <laughs> yeah, I don't so. let it, I don't let it devolve. Um, Cause once it gets to that point, you're obviously speaking with too much emotion and you need to take a step back and, and think about it and then come back with a cool head. Because yeah. I will not, I'm not a yeller, and you will not come at me yelling. Yeah, okay, I, so I got to agree with that. There, there have been times whenever I've told the person I'm with, look, I'm going to say something that I really don't want to say, and you're going to see this as me running away. But what it is, I'm going to walk away because I don't want to say what I want to say. And I'm going to just walk. I'll be back in half an hour, 45 minutes. We can pick it up from here. You don't want me to say what I'm going to say. Yeah, like Marcus raised his voice at me. Uh, this is actually a couple of weeks ago. We were getting into a little spat and he raised his voice at me. And I, I said, shut the fuck up. Go take a walk. Oh, I like that. I, I, I take not. the walk, but you make them take the walk. Very oh, yeah. nice. Well, I was, I was trying to put the kids to bed. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you will not raise your voice at me. You need to go. Like, go take a walk. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss when you get back. Like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> well, Edward and Velma did not have either of your abilities to walk away from a fight, it seemed, uh, and to go take a deep breath or anything like that. And so it starts being about everything, all the problems in their relationship. He hauls off and either smacked or punched her. That led to her having a nosebleed. She ran off to the bedroom. He pursued her and started the fight up again. She said, well, she had a little bit of the restraint, at least she was suggesting. Uh, she said, I'm sick of all this fighting. If you don't stop, I'm going to leave you. And he said, 
with less restraint, I'll kill you before I let you leave. And this is from her own account to an author, the author describing her account. He came toward her. Step by step, she drew back and until she stopped by a table, until she was stopped by a table at the further side of the room. Her groping hand fell on a claw hammer, which was lying there. This she had been using that day and putting up some cords in the closet. So she raised the hammer and she said, don't come any closer. He ignored that advice. And so she struck him. He continued advancing and she struck him again and again until he fell to the ground and didn't get up. She then proceeded to tie him up and she claims that it was because she was sure she had seen signs of life and she didn't want him to follow her when he woke up. A twitching foot is not a sign of life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And she she left. She didn't call the police because she, quote, didn't want to bring them into the quarrel and didn't call a doctor because reasons. So here's the more straightforward version. Women can't use a hammer. Well, we're wrong. (laughs) The more straightforward version. They fought. He slapped her several times. She went into a rage and beat him to death with a claw hammer in their bedroom. Hit him six to eight times. The blood spatter and the position and angle of the wounds led authorities to believe that Edward fell around the first or the second hit from the hammer and kept trying to get up, but she kept hitting him. And then once he was unconscious, she put a pillowcase over his face, rolled him over and hit him with a table leg. Jesus. Then she, yeah, it's pretty, it's actually pretty brutal. Like, you know, she didn't stop at the hammer. Uh, That was bad enough. Then she ties it up, and the theory there is she wanted to make it look like a robbery, uh, gagged him and threw a quilt over him, and then went down to the basement to burn her murder clothes. I like to think that she tried a few other things. Huh, okay, that's a hammer. That's good. Table leg. Oh, I like this. I like how, like, the carved-in design from the wood lathe. Uh, gives me a little bit of a uh, little bit of grip on that. Well, that's nicer. Uh, let's go get a golf club. And by that time, it's just like, well, now it's just mush. I can't. I can't really tell. I can't wait to kill again. <laughs> so she put on her hat and coat and probably some other clothes after she burned her murder clothes. One just assumes. Hopped into her green roadster, headed down to Cleveland to the bridge party. This was another quote from what she told the author. She only did this because she had promised to go, and it seemed like it was the next thing to do. Yes, that's what you do. You kill your husband, and then you go to a party, I guess. So uh, she, she was did celebrating. Re- they have divorce <laughs> parties. It's close enough. <laughs> well, it's a post-murder party. I feel like that's going to be a thing in 25 years. Just murdered by husband parties. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by the Crime Juicy Cocktail Hour podcast. So what have we been listening to lately, guys? We've been listening to the Crime Juicy Cocktail Hour podcast lately and loving it. On Crime Juicy, Krista, Becca, and Carrie Ann talk about the most fascinating true crimes, the most bonkers cults, and the juiciest controversies. Everything from the insanity defense and psychopathy to sex trafficking and the intelligence community. And they have interviews with professionals from the investigative world, so you get stories and discussions from people in the know. 
Not only that, but these three spooky ladies come from a knowledgeable, multidisciplinary perspective, giving their listeners a thorough, smart, and when appropriate, funny discussion of whatever topic they're taking on each week. And everyone knows we love it when people do their research. Well, these ladies do their research. Just search for Crime Juicy Cocktail Hour wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Witching Hour, a show where I, your host, John Roysland, will bring you my thoughts and opinions on horror-related topics through the industry. From movies, to video games, music, horror-related food products, to news, conventions, local haunts, and my favorite celebrity interviews. I hope you enjoy the episodes. Please subscribe and like to the pod show and follow my pages on Facebook and Instagram. Don't forget to share some love for The Witching Hour. And as always, remember to keep it evil. She did reportedly play pretty well at the bridge table that night. She won a bunch of prizes. They also got her singing. She sang songs like Missing You, Dear, and I'm Tired and Lonely for Home, and danced also. Of course, there are her own accounts. Her mother especially defends her a lot and says, no, that didn't happen. They had to draw her out. She really didn't seem like she wanted to party or talk, but then they, they drew her out enough, you know, like they, they made her forget her troubles or something like that. So, but most of the other accounts seem like, yeah, she was just singing and dancing and having a jolly old time. Uh, so she stayed at Mabel Young's. That was the, the hostess of the party all night. The next morning, she had an appointment to go shopping with her mother. And since it was getting close to Christmas... She bought a dozen handkerchiefs for her husband. A present. <laughs> He's going to be buried with them. Something to clean up all that blood with. Yeah. Uh, in her statement, she said she didn't know he was dead. So, of course, she bought Christmas presents for him. Ooh, that's Meanwhile, good. that's really good. It is pretty good. Yeah. It that's is what pretty I good. Thought too, yeah. yeah. I give her some credit for that one. I didn't know he was dead. Just handkerchiefs for everybody. Yeah. So Eddie's brother James came to the little honeymoon cottage uh, that morning as well, probably while she was out shopping, and found a really gruesome surprise when he found his brother murdered. So Velma got home, the police and the county sheriff were waiting to tell her that an intruder had killed her husband. Because that's, they did believe that at first. But after about three to four hours at the interrogation table, she confessed. But she was so overcome that she couldn't even speak. She had to write it all out. She was held without bond See, and charged with... I, Go ahead. I actually had it that it was on the trip back to Perry, Velma confessed to the crime. It wasn't while she was being interrogated. Maybe. It was written differently in so many different accounts um, yeah. that it was really hard to get a handle on how that actual progression of events worked. Because uh, there are so many situations here where the sources varied wildly. Yeah. Wildly. I, like, I, I'm actually, I was giving you the opening. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, because she really wasn't even considered a suspect. Uh, I mean, because they, this is a little hundred pound woman. How, yeah. how could she have beaten her husband to death? I mean, she's a woman like with a 
fragile uterus and he's a buff <laughs> and he's man like with, six foot yeah buff man testicles of steel yeah but she had a hammer yeah like, <laughs> i don't care how buff you are if i have a hammer to your temple you're going down bucko see see <laughs> the great equalizer hammers <laughs> also here's here's a little something if you're going to carry a baseball bat in your car for protection, number one, I salute you. That's fine. But do your fucking lawyer a favor. Keep 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 a glove and a baseball in your car as well. Plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, yeah, we don't really know exactly how it goes, but I am... That's a little upsetting to me because I am super curious about that. I feel like that speaks very much to state of mind and intent and everything, how she acts around the cops and how this information actually comes out. Does she do it willingly? You know, some papers have them grilling her for, for these three to four hours. And, and then some like Scott have her just coming out with it on the ride from, from Cleveland to Perry, which wouldn't have been very long. It was 35 miles. I mean, even if cars could only go 35 miles an hour. Well, there you go. It's an hour, you it, know? It almost speaks to maybe she herself didn't think she was capable of, I'm only a hundred pound little woman. How did I kill this six foot tall man who slaps me around? You know, it, it's, it almost speaks to maybe she thought she didn't kill him. Maybe she thought she just whapped him a couple of times for good measure and then went out. Fucking let him sleep it off. Yeah, I would would say there's a chance that she thought that. She just thought that there's no way like an itty-bitty slip of a woman could could murder a man and actually kill him. And that does make some of her things make sense. Like the the gagging him, not so much. (laughs) That's a little much. But the tying him up, the excuse that, oh, I didn't want him to follow me because he knew that she would be going to the party. Okay, all right. I mean, still not great. You should get medical attention for somebody after you, you know, destroy their head with a hammer. Um, but the putting the comforter over him, maybe to keep him warm? I don't know. There's a lot of confusing shit going on here. There, there's also the way that you see your abuser. I mean, this man was definitely Velma's abuser. She's gone to the police uh-huh. before. I was telling I was telling my wife about you know what a horrible person my older brother was the way he treated me growing up, and I found a picture of him a recent picture, and showed her that this is my brother and she goes that little old man he looks so happy and nice, and yeah you know I'd never really saw it before he's always been like a fucking terrifying demon to me never saw it before he's just a little old man now. Yeah, you've got to, you raise a really good point there that she might have seen him. Differently, and already there there was the disparity in their sizes and in their in their presences, and in their amount of strength and everything. And so, when he has abused her for for this long, and to the extent that she feels helpless all the time, she can't possibly mentally raise herself up from the point of being completely helpless against his abuse to being the person who stopped his abuse by killing him, that's like a really far leap psychologically to take. Yeah, I really, I honestly and truly do not believe she meant to kill him. I don't think she even realized he was dead until she... I, I am even willing to go a step further. Whenever whenever they first like said, oh yeah, somebody broke in and killed your husband, I'm willing to, I'm willing to go, I bet she didn't even think she... It's, I bet she believed it for a second. It wasn't me. Somebody actually came in and killed him after I delivered this brutal beating with a table leg and a hammer. 
Oh my, what a coincidence. Yeah. No, but like, I, I actually kind of agree with that. Like, I don't think in, in her mental space that she actually thought she could kill him. He yeah. was he was an unstoppable juggernaut in his in in her mind, and then whenever she like like Amber said, hammers the great fucking equalizer. Yeah, it's and she then thought, like, oh my god, I tied him up, and then somebody came into the house and they they killed him, and he was helpless. He was helpless because of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys make a lot of good points here. I have to say, uh. And I haven't known since I started researching this, I haven't known really where to stand, but having like as, as far as her intentions go and then her perception of what she had done. But I got to say, if this were a debate, you'd be swaying me, you know, uh, Log cabin. <laughs> <laughs> for the new we've got a lot of loot, new listeners. We should explain log cabin. Christy, would you like to explain log cabin to the new listeners? Yes, I will. Uh, we were playing apples to apples, and uh, I was the one picking, you know, the winning card. And Scott was really lobbying hard for the, the card log cabin. I was picking between two, and he, he did this, I swear to God, 10-minute diatribe about why log, yeah, at <laughs> yeah. least, why log cabin was the it, better choice. Here's, here's the thing. It was, it was, you were supposed to describe everything. And somebody had threw in the card, the universe, and I started arguing for Log Gabin. Does the universe have maple syrup? I fucking think not. And I mean, I just, I went hard at it. You did. You really did. And by the end of it, I was both, I think it was, a, it was 50% convinced and 50% just worn down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I said, fine, all right, log cabin, just leave, just let it go, Scott, you win. And then you just sat back and you went, that wasn't my card. No, I threw in universe. <laughs> you were arguing <laughs> against your own card. I had principles. <laughs> that, yeah, that is uh, when, when Scott, when anybody convinces somebody in a debate, log cabin is generally brought up because uh, that was the... I think one of the the top debates of, of our time. I didn't want to win the wrong way, and we admire you for that. So, so yeah, Velma, she she had confessed. She's charged with first degree murder, and she could get the chair. It's it's definitely in in the realm of possibility. No journalists were allowed to see her. She for a while she had actually had a, like a nervous collapse. And she was called by the, the Lancaster Eagle Gazette, the pretty blonde who sits in her cell smoking cigarettes. And since they couldn't get in to see her, I just imagined that they just assumed, which we all do. I'm <laughs> imagining they're probably right. Yeah, yeah. And she did not ask to attend her husband's funeral. He was buried on December 10th. Nearly the whole town turned out. And meanwhile, the jailers noted that she seemed pretty cheerful that day and spent the day quote reading and smoking in the cell that has taken on the appearance of a boudoir. There's a, a picture of her, a writing desk uh, of hers. I think I actually saved it so that in, in case neither of you stumbled upon it, I'm pretty sure I saved it, but you definitely, it's interesting because she, she has pictures like some of them framed like up on the wall, uh, probably a, a dozen or more. 
definitely, you know, they definitely allowed some decoration in the cells, like like we talked about in the Gillette murder with him putting his spank bank on the wall, for God's sakes. <laughs> but this seemed to be like family members and friends and stuff like that. Probably not Edward. I'm just going to go put that out there. So, God, can you imagine what the spank banks are, are like in prisons today? Just fucking, oh God. fucking Furbies and anime. <laughs> I feel like that's got to be inaccurate somehow. <laughs> like, uh, so the press called her various things. Usually they like to call her the flapper hammer slayer, which, okay, we can do better. Scott, what you got? Uh, the flapper, better than the flapper hammer slayer? I'm sorry. That sounds like a, that sounds like a bathroom cleaning supply. Yeah. That's pretty good in my opinion. Uh, yeah. Give me, you kind of caught me off guard with that. Give me a few moments and I'll scream something out here and, and probably talk over a lot of people. I, I like to put you on the spot. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Uh, really no, no, no. It out. The, I, can, I can continue. I just was saying I do like to put you on the spot. It was the funny. busty beating oh. beauty. How about that? There you go. I like it. I like it. There you go. Yeah, nice. That's uh, also the name of You're, a video uh, I watched before the podcast. <laughs> so inspiration. Uh, one of the papers calls her uh, a split personality. So they're doing some some diagnosing um, of the when did early type. When did the movie Five Faces of Eve come out? Uh, I mean, I can look it up real quick, but I feel like I'm going to actually, I'm going to, let's play a guessing game. Let's guess. I'm going to say 1984. Uh, I actually just looked it up. It is 1957, and it's actually called The Three Faces of Eve, so we added two faces. I'm sorry. I was thinking of quintessence. I was thinking of quintessence from Transformers. <laughs> Three people just yeah, really actually... found that funny as hell. <laughs> that was actually, yeah, that was a lot earlier than I thought. Uh, I just have a very vague memory of watching it for some reason in a psychology class in high school in the 90s. Probably not a good, no. I, Maybe we shouldn't have football coaches teach our, psych, teach our psychology class. I think that they may have remade it at one point. Maybe. Let's see. So when was the original book? The original book was, oh. No. I would like to state that it, in the in the Google search under the people also ask, the first question is how many faces did Eve have? Oh, okay. So. 27. Three seems like a low number for multiple personality. Or dissociative yeah. identity. Sorry. But no, I was kind of thinking, I was kind of thinking maybe three faces of Eve was popular then. So it's, it would have been the, uh, you know. It would have been the uh, diagnosis du jour of the time. But no, it came quite a while later, 30 years. Okay, I was actually close that there is the movie Sybil, Sybil that was uh, a television film uh, starring Sally Field uh, that was 1976. So, uh, and I believe that was also the dissociative identities. Yes, yes, that was. I think. Sybil. So that's probably what I was thinking of. And I think that was based on a true story as well. I want to say yeah. Sybil had 27 personalities. See, that seems more, you know, like. I remember, I remember hearing someplace that she admitted they were fake. 
I mean, I'm looking at the, it did, there was a controversy over it. Um, and I honestly, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that that was the case at all for, for Velma to, to circle back. No, here. no, no. This woman didn't have multiple personalities. She had one and it was a badass. <laughs> I mean, the murder's not so great, but she was rising against her abuser. So that it's so, it's so difficult because it's like, you're like, well, maybe there was something else that she could do. And then you're like, well, she did go to the goddamn sheriff. I right. mean, what do you want her to go to the FBI? That's barely even a thing yet. Right? <laughs> if, if the cops aren't going to help you and you're being slapped around, what other choice do you have, really? And honestly, if this case had come about 70, 80 years later, she might have gotten off with Batters women's syndrome. Mm-hmm. I mean, because that's likely what she had <laughs> so anyhow so but the press and the public everybody's just asking why and the rest of us are all like because he beat her like hello but uh ida mcclone gibson gets herself an interview with velma's lawyer francis paulson and i've a couple of the quotes i've read of her describing the actual murder come from that uh interview she gets all of Velma's life story about the constant fear that she'd been haunted all by all her life and that she just went into a blind panic and a rage. But there's also in these, you know, in trying to answer the question, why did she do it? Some new evidence that comes out that Velma was in a relationship with Mabel Young, the hostess of that faded bridge slash happy murder party. The papers called it a warm friendship that had been going on since July of that year, 1927. Mabel was a stenographer in Cleveland, just a few years out of high school, around Velma's age. They liked to uh, ride up to the lake. They liked to go swimming. And according to Mabel, quote, Velma was greatly attached. Ooh. Yeah, right? It is said that there were some steamy letters that went back and forth between them. So this coming out was kind of big. Velma said, no, none of this happened. But if it did, then you should also blame the lesbian hostess just as much as me because we both wrote sexy letters. So <laughs> it's kind of like she's like, none of this happened. But, you know, like, don't blame me as much for it, even though it didn't happen. Logic. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, so I think, I think it's, she I, I, fucked me back. Yeah. <laughs> as far as why, uh, it could be all of this. You know, she's with an abuser. She can't be with the person that she might love or be at least strongly infatuated with, maybe. And she could never be with that person because of society. And then all of this is happening and maybe her husband's figuring stuff out about it. And that's causing even more beatings and arguments and everything. I am modern day husband. What? Oh, you want to come over? Like, yeah. Just yeah, saying. now. <laughs> now. But so actually leading up to the trial, they had the cottage under 24-hour surveillance. Uh, the trial was scheduled for March and they were going to take the jury to the cabin and to the bedroom or what the Lancaster Eagle Gazette called in one heck of a uh, flourish of prose, the death chamber. Yes. 
I love it when journalists get dramatic in old-timey papers. It's my bread and butter. I, I get the feeling. I really get the feeling like they're sitting there. Come on, we got to make this murder sexy. What do we, what do we, what do we call it? What do we call the bedroom? What's a new name for the bedroom? Death chamber? I like it. Get this man out of coke. I feel like there's something we could work with with Velma and Hammer because you can make them sound kind of similar. The Hammer Hammer. <laughs> yeah, so, and meanwhile, uh, Velma is hanging out in her cell, probably smoking, reading murder mysteries. Um, hmm. Okay, I am, You're I am in one. on board. Yeah, yeah. And I'm definitely on board with people reading in jail, and I think that we should support that. But I, when you're about to go on trial for murder, I think the last thing you should be reading is murder mystery. I'm just, it's a bad, it's bad. It's a bad look. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. Oh, it cracks me up. It cracks me right up. (laughs) As soon as I read that, I was like, oh, of course you did. But you know what? I get it because it, like, heaven forbid, if anything would happen to one of our loved ones, they would look at us first because we have a true crime podcast. Oh, my boss currently makes fun of me all the time. Quite frankly, it's getting old. It's, you know, it's, you know, oh, you're, you're the one that's interested in murder. And it's like, I'm not so much interested in murder as I am interested in getting a new job. And I'm really working <laughs> hard at that. Yeah, it's it's definitely, I mean, I will admit that when I first started getting into true crime podcasts and would, would play them for Jackson or tell him about them occasionally, he started getting a little nervous. Uh, but he started listening to them with me and then he got into them too. So, like, we have our standard Friday night Date night has now been become hanging out with takeout, playing video games, and listening to small town murder. Well, like it's, every week, it's, every Friday. Here's the thing: it's fascinating. I, I think it's I think it's actually important. It, it's important for people to listen to true crime. Uh, quite honestly, number one, it's entertaining, but number two, it it allows you to put yourself into a situation without having any danger. So, I mean, I think people that listen to true crime, they're more likely not to get themselves into danger. And you know what? Maybe there's maybe there's like one or two people listening to this right now that, unfortunately, their significant others are hitting them. And if, They should if, invest in a hammer. They, I'm, I'm not saying invest in a hammer. I'm saying maybe, maybe, maybe we could make a few people realize that they're in a really bad situation and, you know, hopefully they can get out of that. And you know what? If you are, uh, there's a couple options for you. You can and do this in incognito mode and then, like, wipe your browser history. Like, do everything Control you can to hide your tracks. Control-Shift-P in Firefox. Yeah. Control-Shift-P. And go to thehotline.org and you can get help there. There is also a phone number I'm looking up. Our website, internet usage can be monitored and is impossible to erase completely. If you're concerned about your internet usage might be monitored, call us at 800-799-SAFE. That's 800-799-7233. And so, yeah, they have uh, that information right there in a pop-up as soon as you go to the site. That's fantastic. I really love that they tell you that right out. That's that's really good. Education is a big part of all this. So, so yeah. If you feel like you're in this situation, 
there are resources out there. Even if you're not ready right now, just put it in the back of your mind for, for when you are ready, because I promise you someday you will be. So, so uh, Velma's also getting lots of mail. Uh, interestingly, it's not all fan mail. It's both comforting and condemning. So that's probably because she's a woman. <laughs> so usually it's all fan mail. People just love the murderer. <laughs> so in January 1928, uh, Velma goes for arraignment. She refused to enter. Okay. Actually, wait. This was sort of presented by the newspaper as she wouldn't give a plea. She refused to enter a plea in the headlines. And then you read the actual article and it's like, no, there's actually like a legal thing going on here. The, the, the whole idea is the attorney is doing this on purpose because Ohio law required defendants to announce if they would be considering an insanity plea. And they were still working out whether or not they wanted to go in that direction. So she couldn't say, I'm going to plead not guilty because if she wanted to use an insanity plea, if she wanted to keep that in her possible bag of tools for the trial she would need to say that as well. I'm going to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. So that was why he, this was his instruction so that they could continue to investigate whether the insanity plea would be something they wanted to pursue and not her just being like, eh, fuck you, judge. I'm not pleading. I'm going to smoke my cigarette with my bobbed hair and my trousers. And I'm, I don't know why I gave her a Southern accent. <laughs> I'm still talking like that. Like shit, she's from Ohio. Not Arkansas. I know, right? Yeah, I think that's more of like a Midwest. Don't you know? (laughs) Don't you know I'm not going to plead? I mean, yeah, Ohio, you're getting pretty dangerously close to don't you know territory. Oh, I just default Southern. It's it's a bad thing. It's I mean, not nothing against Southern accents. It's a bad thing because my husband hates them. Um, so nothing against Southern accents for me, just from Jackson. So <laughs> Southern accent is one of the ones, no matter how smart you are, you sound like a fucking idiot. No, I love them because they sound so welcoming, even if they're insulting you. The only thing, the only thing, if you're a lawyer... Just come right out and say you're an idiot and then attack them with your logic. That's the best thing <laughs> in Southern Eye. Brain surgeons can't do that. <laughs> no. Okay. So I work with a lovely, lovely Southern woman and um, they say, God damn it, Amber, in the nicest possible way. Because um, I get, oh, bless your heart. Oh, yep. That's that's um, all the time. But I'm like, that's the nicest way to tell me to go fuck myself. It like is it indeed. Really is. <laughs> I mean, it can be used in other contexts, but yeah, that is that is very much uh, the, the Southern go fuck yourself. So, so, but the thing about this insanity plea in Velma's case is the reason they're considering it is because of the whole lesbian angle. Because if she's a lesbian, of course, she must be crazy. Lesbian angle is also the name of a video I watched today. Oh, God. <laughs> the defense attorney was actually welcoming all of this this new information that was coming out about her, you know, like steamy love letters and relationships and everything. He was like, yeah, bring it on, bring it on. It just <laughs> helps my case because the more lesbian she is, the more nuts she is. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. With your hands, how big of a lesbian would you say you are? <laughs> like, this much or this much? <laughs> So in March 1928, the trial is approaching, and they actually had to put an extra guard in her cell at that point 
because she was showing signs of increased nervousness and they were afraid that she was going to have a nervous breakdown. So she had 24-7 guards now. Quote, she smokes many cigarettes and spends much of her time reading magazines. And her mother added to that that she also embroidered and read the Bible. (laughs) We get such different stories. It's kind of hilarious. Uh, Her mother brought her clothes for the trial, including black dresses and low-heeled black shoes. And her mother also said that, my, you know, my daughter Velma, she's frail, she's frightened, and I just don't know if she'll even be able to handle the ordeal of a trial. Seemed actually this was maybe this this difficulty with, with, with handling this big ordeal was potentially kind of passed down to her in one way or another because her mother would, would soon after this become very sickly and, and would not actually be able to attend the first day. There was word that it would become a very long trial, uh, just based on what had been presented at the grand jury, that there might be at least 50 witnesses for the prosecution and 30 for the defense. So that would drag on. And then some new evidence comes out. And this is a game changer. The new evidence is that she had done all the stuff that we told you. She had beaten her husband with a hammer, table leg, tied him up, gagged him, burned her murder clothes, put on her hat and coat, headed out to the car. Gets to the car and realized she didn't have the keys. So, the keys were in Edward's pockets. So she had to go back in and rifle through his pockets to get them. And this kind of put a dent in her whole defense, in, in, including like the insanity defense and just her in, in general defense. And it really changed how she approached things, plus her anxiety with the trial coming and everything. So on the first day of the trial, before they even started jury selection, she decides, let's just stop. Let's not do this. And then there was some behind the scenes wrangling for a plea deal and the prosecution was open to that because they actually didn't think they had enough to get her convicted of first-degree murder. They didn't believe it. Pleading guilty to second-degree murder. She did get a life sentence, but she was supposed to be eligible for parole in 10 years. Her father was present for the sentencing, but like I said, her mother was ill at home. Her father said, It was the best thing under the circumstances, but I am certainly going through hell. She was sent to Marysville Reformatory for Women. She would later admit in an interview that during her first year, she did attempt suicide. She had some scars on her wrist from that. And in an interview in 1939, they were were really taking a close look at this particular reformatory because it was sort of approaching uh, punishing criminals, but in less of a punishment way. Uh, So letting things be a little more open, allowing them a little bit more freedom. So she was asked her advice for young girls. She said, finish school, be careful picking a husband. On that note, don't marry until you're around 30 and know your own mind. And also don't elope like I did. And when asked about the, the, you know, relationship with, Mabel Young, she said, I can truthfully say that my friendship with Mabel Young was only a deep, true friendship 
There's nothing wrong with it. Now, we don't know, honestly. Like, I look at what she says and I'm like, I don't know. And that's okay. She was whatever she was and whatever she believed she was and whatever she wanted to be. And that's fine. And that's where I want to leave it. I don't really want to super speculate about her sexuality as much as we've been like, ooh, titillating. You know, like, I don't want to be like, was she a lesbian? Was she bisexual? She was what she was. And maybe she had a period where, you know, she was kind of into girls. Maybe that was all made up for the papers. We don't fucking know is where I'm going to, where I would like to leave that. All right. But I do I feel bad that she did. She never did get to see Mabel again, whether it just be a friendship or more romantic. Um, she, she never did get to see Mabel, which was sad. Yeah. It yeah. is sad. But if Mabel was the one who went to the papers with their letters, which I'm not sure who else would have, that would maybe make it a good idea for her not to see Mabel again, because maybe especially not if there were any hammers nearby. Well, so. Mabel, Mabel is, died already. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Tell, tell. Yeah, Mabel uh, actually died in 1929. In May of 1929, she was working at the Cleveland Clinic, and a fire broke out, and Mabel actually lost her life in that fire. Oh, jeez. Oh, my God. I had no idea. Wow, okay. Jeez. Take back my thing about the hammer. Um, <laughs> I, I said the that without any knowledge. for you. <laughs> I, I take it back. I, I, I'll copy every <laughs> nasty thing I ever said and say more. So there was a 1934 article in the Conshockton Tribune that talked about life in the reformatory. And so we're going to get into that just a little bit because I think it's important to know the kind of life she was living, which really wasn't that bad. You were up at 6.30 a.m., then you had breakfast. You would work until 5 with a dinner break, so kind of a long day. But you had free time at night. You could hang out in your room. You could check books out of the library, or you could hang out in the courtyard. On the weekends, they would have a picture show in the chapel on Saturday afternoon, and then church services on Sundays. They had a dance every two months. No word on if that was just women dancing together or if they brought in men from a, a local nearby prison. No idea. But this was very a very permissive environment. There were no high walls. There were no guards. And they let some of the, even some of the lifers, they let them work outside, like in the gardens. Velma was one of them. She did a lot of work in the gardens. And in this interview, the superintendent was asked uh, if Velma was normal. And her answer was, not any more than she ever was. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. It was something like, Velma is a normal unto herself. Like... <laughs> At that point, the prison, actually, with all of its permissiveness, had only seen one escape. But that would change in 1939 when Velma and three other women escaped. I she love was 30 her reasoning, Paul. <laughs> go ahead. You, you can say it. So she's, her and three other inmates just fucking walk away. And they're captured a month later in Dallas. And they go, why'd you do it? You know, because, you know, the obvious answer is, I don't want to be in jail anymore. But she goes, I uh, just wanted to have one last adventure in this dull life of mine. Oh, my yeah. God, my heart. Do you know in <laughs> yeah. Sweden, if you escape from prison and you're recaptured, it doesn't do anything to your, uh, it doesn't do anything to your sentence? I like how they do, uh... 
how they do criminal justice over in the in the general Scandinavian countries. Yeah. In, in a lot of places over there, they seem to have it right and in a way that's actually making some some strides. Right. Uh, they're they're uh, more on reform than punishment. And if uh-huh. you try to escape, you're not really, you know, you'll be apprehended, you'll be brought back, but no time is added because it's kind of recognized that it's the human desire to be free. That is so smart and true. Yeah. Yeah. See, so yeah, Velma and three other prisoners, it was late on a Sunday night. They had gotten a hold of the keys to the cells and an outside door. I believe from my understanding, there was a key for the outside doors and a key for the cells. So two keys was all they needed to break, you know, the four women out of their cells. And they told any witnesses to keep their mouths shut. And Velma said, I'll be back and get even with anyone who tells on me. So she knew that this was not going to last, too. She knew it. And so they get out. They just they walk out. Uh, they did have to do some, some trekking through the mud. And now the other escapee she was with, they were all more than 10 years younger than her. And she claimed that this was all their plan. They actually didn't want her in on it originally because of her poor health at the time. But they took pity on her and, and finally roped her in. So they all left. So there's four women. One of them drops off pretty pretty early and goes to do her own thing. And then three of them, uh, they, they head to Dallas. They actually hitchhiked from Ohio to Texas. That's impressive, I have to say. I bet it and, was pretty easy. Come on, some cute girls. Thumb yeah, out. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but still... Uh, uh, let's let's say okay maybe it was pretty easy for them to get rides but uh they're probably lucky that they little survived them <laughs> so uh, okay i take it all back <laughs> yes. i don't think it was lucky that they survived <laughs> well only she was the only murderer amongst them uh the others were one was a forger one was i think a cat burglar and then the other one was just known as an incorrigible prisoner. Like they didn't actually have her original charge. She was just kept on being put in jail and being bad. It feels like a DC comic superhero team. It does. Yeah. Yeah. I do like them as a little, as a little team. So they, uh, they were captured in Dallas after 36 days on the run, as, as Scott said, Cops saw them on the street and matched up their mug shots uh, to their faces. And they were like, I've seen your face on the wall back at the station. And <laughs> the, the mastermind here, when reporters were interviewing them, she said, I'll see you boys again the next time they leave the doors open. Well. <laughs> I like her. So uh, what had happened was, like I said, they hitchhiked. Velma got a job at a honky-tonk in Dallas. Of course he did. Of course. Of course. She told a tale of meeting a truck driver in Texas who was 26, tall, dark, handsome, and wanted to marry her. Later stories would cite a total of six men that she dated during this 36 days on the run, with two of them proposing. Wow. Her compan- Right? Yeah. Well... Even her, her companion, uh, who is the, the mastermind of the whole breakout scheme, she said, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, I think Chiseler is, is definitely like a, 
women's version of ladies man mm. you know a, a men's lady or something like that but she said i thought i was a chiseler but you should see that girl go after them i'm telling you that velma there's a woman whose uterus won't fall out in a train i tell you what <laughs> yeah so actually it came out that the mastermind of the prison break had actually flat out told the superintendent in may that she was going to escape in July. God, they escaped on, damn. Right? They escaped on June 20th. So, but the superintendent was just like, well, I'll have to start keeping my eye on you in a month. <laughs> Apparently wasn't. Damn. So. <laughs> this is what happens whenever you're ahead of schedule. You throw off the people trying to stop you. Yeah, there you go. And so, yeah, these two ladies are headed back. The other two are still on the lam. The word from the superintendent, and actually this came out in the papers and caused a big uproar, uh, but it was said that the ladies were going to be put in solitary for at least a month upon their return. The first week of solitary would be in the dark. No lights. I think Bread and water. I think solitary is cruel and unusual, quite honestly. I agree with that. I fully agree with that. I don't think the human psyche is meant to experience that. And I don't think it, it, it can come out of that untraumatized and therefore cruel and unusual. 100% yes, agree. agree. Yeah. So, and for the first, that for, for that entire time in solitary, there would only have bread and water. And there was also word coming out that uh, the, these two women were also going to have their heads shaved as punishment. Somehow, I think the head shaving actually was the thing that people were protesting the most about. <laughs> they weren't happy about the solitary, but they were like, don't you dare shave their heads. Not that beautiful and, blonde hair. Right? Well, actually, of course, because they were on the lamb, they had dyed it. She had dyed hers like they said a henna color, so probably like a, a, a reddish kind of. And uh, her, her companion, who was also caught, had dyed hers a, a, a black and the superintendent said, okay, well, no, we're not going to shave it. We're only going to clip it so that you can't see their dyed hair. But if they dyed their hair all the way to the roots, I think you're going to shave it. Yeah, that, that's called shaving their heads. Yeah. That's, uh... Yeah, it's only been 36 days. They haven't had that much time for their hair to grow. You're going to have a centimeter of hair, if that. So, but as far as the solitary was concerned, they did come out and change it to bread and coffee for three days and then regular food after that, but still 30 days in solitary. No word on if the first week was completely in the dark, which is beyond cruel and unusual, I think. Appalling. So also they were, these, these ladies were a little concerned because it, some of the inmates were supposedly, and not surprisingly, pretty unhappy that uh, some of their fellow inmates had been punished and lost privileges because of all of this. And there was speculation that there might be some physical altercations upon the return, but there's no actual reports of any, uh, you know, results of violence. Velma said that that was it for her. She's like, I, I, I wouldn't try to escape again. It wasn't really worth it. You know, all this for, for a little over a month of, of terrified freedom. So as for the other two escapees, one was captured in September, so so she lasted uh, a, a couple months longer than the other two. The other one actually stayed free until 1941, so she was out for, for two years, and she turned herself back in because she was like, you know what, I 
she, she went to school and was trying to better herself and trying to get a job. And she was like, I got to finish this off, pay my debts to society, and then I can move on with my life. So she turned herself back in. Pretty impressive. Velma went back to ordinary prison life. She has some visits from her mom and her brother occasionally. She was working in the prison laundry, no longer allowed out in the gardens. And she didn't have the same trust that she'd had before. In fact, she'd literally been a trustee in the prison prior to her escape, and that, that was not the case anymore. And the superintendent went on to write a book in which she called Velma her famous failure. Wow, harsh. I, I know. Well, I think that the superintendent meant a failure on my part because the, the superintendent thought that Velma was not an escape risk. And that's my take on it. That, that, but it was, it, was, it was her own failure. But she, it was most well known because she was, she was excoriated for all this in the press. And especially when all the ideas about the, the punishment they would receive when they came back, you know, the, the head shaving and the solitaire, solitary, they're not playing solitaire. Um, she It'd actually be great said if they and, were, though. Like, I mean, give them some cards. 30, 30 days solitaire. I think I could do that. There we go. Let's change solitary confinement to solitaire confinement. I think nothing I, but free cell for days. God damn. <laughs> oh, yeah. She actually said the the superintendent said in the press when everybody was was going nuts about the head shaving thing. She said, "I feel like I'm on trial for murder." So, I think she meant like Velma was her famous failure. And I think the the mastermind of the scheme was her less famous failure because yeah, if somebody tells you they're going to escape. Don't treat it like a joke. Listen, stop it. Dumb superintendenting. So Velma continued to decline and she continued to be denied parole. Just kept on going on and on. She got interested in music. She started writing songs. She got pretty into the Catholicism. In 1958, she said, we pray more for others than ourselves. I committed a crime, took another human life. Regardless of whether you are justified, you just don't do that. Every time I say communion, it is for my husband. If his soul can't be saved, I don't want mine to be. I pray for him every day. It is my belief that God has let me live this long to let me do this. Which kind of breaks your heart. Yeah. So her health got worse and worse. She was wasting away. She was only 86 pounds when she passed away on October 27th, 1959 at the reformatory. She was 53 years old. Yeah, she yeah. was she was really wasted away. I mean, she was it seemed like she lost a lot of weight upon coming into prison because she was tossed into solitary at first then because she was having a really hard time behaving and conforming to what they wanted from her. And so she lost a lot of weight. It did seem like she she gained some of it back in the intervening years. But then after she started really wasting away, that was like it, you know. Yeah, I just feel so bad for her that she never did get paroled because like, especially towards the end there, she's like, I just want to spend time with my mother like, that's all I want to do. I'm too sick to do anything. Like, I'm not going to hurt anybody. I just want to basically die with my mom. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who was called her only friend. 
You know, like, yeah, it's, it's really sad that she couldn't get get paroled, at least to end her life outside of the reformatory walls. And yeah, it was, you know, she, she thought at first that she would be paroled within 10 years. But uh, she, you know, that, that life sentence really kicked in and ended up uh, being the death of her. So. It, it was it, it's it's interesting because. She she was kind of a celebrity because of this. Um, yeah. Like reporters would fixate on her fashion choices and a local theater said, Hey, you get out of prison. Guess what? You're getting a leading role at our theater. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. She definitely, she did became famous, become famous for it to the extent that when it was brought up in articles, you know, in, in the, Years afterwards, it was it was eleven years after her sentence that she escaped, and there's three other women. Generally, she would be the one who was in the headline. So that's how famous she was. So yeah, that is the story of Belma West. And if you like that, there's a couple things you can do to show us your like and your love of us. You can go to the Patreon like we talked about at the top of the show. And, but if you're not the Patreon type, if you just want to leave a buck or two on the nightstand, that's fine too. We appreciate literally every cent. And so you can do that using our email address, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. Don't forget about our merch, oldtimeycrimey.redbubble.com. There we go. We're over there. We have all kinds of stuff. You just wouldn't believe the amount of stuff that we have over there. All kinds of items with different slogans and old-timey crimey stuff uh, that you can enjoy. I'm actually going there real quick because I want to uh, mention a couple of the designs. Uh, the designs are, aside from, you know, the, the designs are by me, by the way. So, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, vlog my own shit. There's the Voodoo Sex Riot uh, option item you can get that in a variety of uh 77 different products all kinds of different sh shirts and ipad skins and iphone skins and prints and all kinds of stuff the voodoo sex riot from way back that feels like ages ago doesn't it guys it, it does it does man wow if you really want to go way way back you can go to the schmidt gets real from our han schmidt episode with a lovely uh picture of a rooster on it <laughs> um and if you don't know what that means you need to go back and listen to both of the uh Hans schmidt episodes because that's that's where you'll find that and so yeah uh, filthy words uh, i listen to filthy words there's sources very wildly so yeah there there's some good stuff there and uh, i hope to put more stuff up and if you have any suggestions for that go to our social media we're all timey crimey on facebook and twitter and you can also email us at oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com and tell a friend. Rate, review, subscribe, yeah. But tell a friend first. That's the easiest thing to do. If you're just there and you're talking to them, you're like, hey, podcast recommendation, old-timey crimey. And then they'll laugh a little bit at the name like people do. And then maybe they'll go check us out and you guys can talk about murders together. So, yeah, you should do that for sure. And that's all my bullshit. What are we doing this week, guys? I am doing more and more walking. Uh, it, I'm, I'm stunned. I, I pulled a sliver of glass out of my toe about a week and a half ago and i am stunned at how much my health has improved since then wow <laughs> yeah i i did a little bit I'm, I'm still i'm still like recuperating but i've like climbed up and down the steps more than i have 
in the past month. Uh, went for a little bit of a walk in Stackhouse Park. I'm actually feeling pretty good, aside from the standard aches and pains. And as the ladies heard whenever I forgot to mute my mic, the, the nosebleeds. <laughs> I'm just literally falling apart. My wife's going, I don't know if you're going to die or not. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was kind of adorable when we eavesdropped on that. Um, well, that's fantastic. That's great. Getting out there and walking and stuff. That's Yeah, it's good. It's good to get out. And I'm, I'm glad that you're, you're doing better now that you, you completely by accident discovered that they had uh, left a sliver of glass in your foot. Whenever you say a sliver, it makes it sound like, oh, it's just, the, no, the thing was like a oh, fucking yeah. inch long. Yeah, it was not. It was not a sliver, and it was also it had some width to it too. So, oh, uh, hey, that, <laughs> so, okay. that Scott sure can take some width if you know what I mean. <laughs> Amber, it's moving weird on from in that. Here. Um, <laughs> what, are, what are you doing? Um, what am I doing? I honest, I've got a lot. I'm doing a lot, but nothing all at the same time. Um, so the kids are off school for the next few days, and so I'm going to be doing a lot of uh, momming up in here. So yeah, nothing, nothing really big planned, but uh, it will be busy. So <laughs> <laughs> just lots of many things. Isn't lots that the fucking things. worst? Whenever it's like I'm so busy, what have you accomplished? Nothing. Yeah, I will <laughs> accomplish absolutely nothing, and I will be so insanely busy. That it hurts. Yeah, um, all the work is just to remain status quo. Yes, yes. Christy, what are you doing? Well, it's my birthday this week, and it's also uh, the two-year anniversary of our first episodes releasing. So lots, lots there. Uh, I'm gonna go sit uh, outside at a place where they serve alcoholic beverages and have myself a glass of wine. Uh, something I haven't done in over a year. So. Looking forward to that. Uh, if the weather, I might have to. It's it's going to be nicer than it is on many of my birthdays. Uh, it's an April birthday, so but it's in Pennsylvania, so more of them have been snowy than not. And this one is going to be non-snowy, but I'm not sure if it's going to be great like sitting outside weather. So I might have to bundle up a little bit for that. Be sure to so. drink through the mask. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, that's that's the one thing uh, we're gonna do is just sit outside, have a glass of wine, and just uh, do birthday stuff. I don't really know yet. I haven't I haven't really decided what I want to do on my birthday. Jackson was like, "What do you want to have for dinner?" And I'm like, "I don't know. It's tomorrow. I can't think that far ahead right now beyond the glass of wine." So, but you never so know yeah. what you're gonna be in the mood for because you might like today be like, "I could go for some tacos," and then tomorrow you'd be like, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, you know what I want?" Like. <laughs> I want some exactly. dick. <laughs> so uh, bypassing that. So yeah, so, yeah, that's what's going on. I'm I'm uh, another year closer to forty. So that's fun. Um, <laughs> I'm fine with it. I'm really okay with it. And then later in the week, actually, I get my second dose of the vaccine. Yay! So I will be fully five G'd up. <laughs> the microchip really itched. Yeah, yeah, it, it it does at first, but you get used to it. Yeah, you know, just like you get used to having Bill Gates's voice in your mind telling you what to do. So. You get Bill Gates. I have Gisele Maxwell. Oh wow, wow, oh, they're really no. switching it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, anyhow, that has been our show, and uh, it's my birthday tomorrow, so I'm gonna go drink now. 
And thank you all so much for listening to our filthy words. We'll see you next week. Have a great week. Take care. And bye. 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 <laughs> see, that's the way you ended. Short and sweet. To the point. Bye. My sources this week are Mark Gribben on Malefactor's Register, Mark Gilson on Gardenopolis Cleveland, Mark J. Price on the Beacon Journal. It's all Marks this week, guys. I only did sources from I guys named Mark. Impressive. But not really. <laughs> Wikipedia, Murderpedia, Richard Raponi on Cleveland Historical, Sarah Pruitt on History.com, Natalie Zarelli on Atlas Obscura, Cindy on Scandals and Sweets, and a variety of newspapers uh, found via newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia and Library of Congress. My sources this week are, hey, Mark Griffin from Malefactors Register and HorrorHistory.net. We've also got another source from OhioMemory.org, um, ScandalsAndSweets.com, ClevelandHistorical.org, and, oh, my favorite, Murderpedia. It's like Wikipedia, but for murder. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to throw anything new into this conversation. Mark Gribben at MalefactorRegister.com, Murderpedia, and Scandals and Sweets. It was a good article. It really was. It was. In you, everybody's still here, right? Yes, I'm yeah. still here. Okay, I always I just get paranoid if I don't see anything for a while, and I have to double check. <laughs> now January, I have I to. Can't make, wait to learn. Now I have to make a note. Fifty three minutes in, I gotta edit some stuff out. We were doing so well, Christy. <laughs> it's all because of my paranoia, but I'd rather do that. I'd rather make you do more work than me talk for five minutes and <laughs> not know that nobody is recording it. I'd rather make you do more work. I'm crying right now on the inside. <laughs> yeah, I said it. <laughs> so. Amber, hand me the hammer. <laughs> it is actually, I have a hammer legitimately right next to me. I'm not even lying. Um, I had it down here to hammer on the lid for a paint can, and so I, I, mm -hmm. I'm just sitting at my desk with a hammer. Setting up plausible mm -hmm. deniability. I mm -hmm. like it. Good work, Amber. Yep. <laughs>